Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have taken away our heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh so that we may receive your word. Open now the eyes of our heart that we might understand your word as it is proclaimed to us. Give us also a ready and willing mind to not only hear, but also to believe and to do all that you have required of us in your holy word. For we pray in the name of your Son and our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you would please open your Bibles to our sermon text, Genesis chapter 8, verse 13 through chapter 9, verse 17. You'll find that in the Pew Bibles on page 6. So Genesis chapter 8, beginning in verse 13. Here now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, The earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every, be- every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens Upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea, into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, 
Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This morning we are pausing our sermon series in the the letter to the Romans to begin a mini-series on the topic of civil government before we tackle Paul's teaching on submitting to governing authorities in Romans chapter 13. There are several reasons to begin our series here in Genesis 8 and 9. The chief of them is this. I believe this is the primary scripture that Paul was drawing from as he composed Romans 13. I want to give credit where credit is due, and I'll be drawing heavily from the work of Dr. David Van Drunen throughout this mini-series. He's written four books on the topics of natural law and the Reformed theology of the two kingdoms. The main book I'll be drawing on for this series of sermons is his most recent book titled Politics After Christendom, published in 2020 and cited at the bottom of your outlines. Van Drunen finds seven points of similarity between Genesis 8, 21 through 9, 17 and Romans 13, 1 through 7. And it makes a compelling case that Paul had this passage in mind when he was crafting Romans 13, 1 through 7. Most importantly, when he wrote, For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted from God. I believe that he was specifically referring to God's establishment of civil government here in Genesis 9, 5, and 6. As we come to this topic of civil government, I'm sure it's one that's been on many minds, especially after what we've been through these last two or three years. Whatever your political inclinations or allegiances, we've all been affected by decisions made by our government throughout the pandemic. And then in the midst of the pandemic, we've had public demonstrations, both peaceful and violent, over police violence, followed by a hotly contested election. Our country may be as deeply divided as it has been since the Civil War, and only growing more so day by day. So, civil government. How do we tackle such a large and difficult topic? We must go to God's word We must hear our Lord speak. We'll begin at the beginning with a very quick summary of the history leading up to God's covenant with Noah, or as I'll refer to it from here forward, the Noahic covenant. 
Then this morning, I'll give an overview of the Noahic Covenant and then focus specifically on the establishment of civil government in chapter 9, verses 5 and 6, and I'll bring in a few other supporting texts. So let's begin at the beginning, briefly tracing history from creation to the flood. As scripture tells us, God created the heavens and the earth in six days, and he rested on the seventh. He created man, male and female, in his own image and likeness as the crown of his creation, And he looked upon his creation, and he declared it was all very good. But as you know, Adam and Eve soon rebelled against their creator. They fell into sin. God placed them under a curse, and he cast them out of the Garden of Eden. And yet, he left them. He did not leave them without hope. He gave them the promise of a seed, the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. And the rest of the book of Genesis is designed around the tracing of genealogies, searching for and awaiting that promised seed of the woman. Along with sin comes the first murder. After Cain murdered his brother Abel, he feared that anyone who found him would kill him. He feared justice. Here we see that God had written the natural law on the heart of every man. And this included not only a general sense of justice, that criminals must be punished, but also that murderers in particular ought to be punished with the death sentence. In the case of Cain, the Lord himself handles the execution of justice. He sentences Cain to be a wanderer on the earth, and he suspends the death sentence for Cain. He puts a mark on Cain to prevent anyone from taking his life. We later see justice perverted by Cain's descendant Lamech, who instead of repaying a wrong proportionally, he kills a man for wounding him, and he promises 77-fold vengeance on anyone else who would dare to wrong him. As history progresses, cities are built, technology advances, and if perhaps systems of justice were established, Scripture does not record it. God himself did not establish civil government at this point. And in fact, it may have been the lack of human justice on earth that led to the great multiplication of wickedness that so angered God. And so we read in Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The wickedness of man led God to again take justice into his own hands in the great outpouring of his wrath in a worldwide flood. And yet he chose to deliver one man and his family, the righteous Noah. Our passage this morning picks up at the end of the flood with the earth now drying out a year later. At the Lord's command, Noah disembarks and immediately offers up a burnt offering in worship. And the Lord responds by making a covenant. So let's consider the nature of the Noahic covenant. First, we see that it is a universal covenant. While Noah is the mediator of the covenant, the covenant is not made exclusively with Noah or Noah and his descendants. Rather, God states several times it is a covenant with all living things on earth. He even says in verse 13, it is a covenant with the earth itself. It is truly a universal covenant. 
Second, the Noahic covenant is not salvific, that is, with a purpose of granting or achieving salvation. Rather, it is a preservative covenant. God promises never again to repeat the flood or to interrupt the regular order of nature, even though he recognizes that sin still abides in the heart of man just as before. And so we read in 8, 21 and 22, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. Now, it's not that the previous curse on the ground has been removed, but no additional curse is added. And God, in his common grace and goodness to man, will cause the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He will send rain on the just and the unjust. According to the promises of this covenant, he will preserve the order of creation. And this will give time for his redemptive plan to be worked out in history. Now let's focus on verses 1 to 7 of chapter 9. God blesses mankind with fruitfulness, bidding him to be fruitful and to multiply greatly on the earth. Verses 1 and 7. And in verse 2, God places the fear of man on all the animals to give protection to man. Furthermore, God provides for man's sustenance, giving him both plants and animals for food, but forbidding the eating of blood. Verses 3 and 4. And then our chief interest this morning, God makes provision for the administration of justice. Verses 5 and 6. So you can put all these preservative functions into five basic categories. The order of nature, reproduction, protection, food, and justice. But notice that there are no promises in this covenant regarding salvation. No mention of the forgiveness of sins. No mention of the promised seed of the woman. While Noah himself was a man of faith, the purpose of this covenant is preservative, not salvific. Third, notice the sign of the covenant, the bow or the rainbow. God sets his bow in the clouds, this weapon of hunting and of warfare. For God to lay down his bow is to declare peace, as he promises to never again bring a cataclysmic flood on the earth. This differs from the signs of the other covenants we know from scriptures. Circumcision, baptism, the Lord's Supper. These signs are only applied to the members of the covenant. But as this is a universal covenant, it is appropriate that it receives a universal sign, which is seen by all, even the animals. Fourth, consider the parties and the conditions of the covenant. Usually when we consider a covenant, we look at what would cause a, a breach of the covenant and lead to the termination of the covenant. But when we look at this covenant, there are no such conditions. Certainly there are requirements that are included in the covenant, and God will hold man accountable if he fails to keep the requirements of the covenant. For example, if he eats meat with the blood, or if he fails to punish a murderer. But the promise to uphold the order of nature is given unconditionally. Once civil government is established along with the right to execute judgment on criminals, it will not be revoked. 
these things are permanent as long as the covenant endures. So fifth, consider the duration of the covenant. Now we might get mixed signals on this. In 8.22 it says, while the earth remains, while in 9.16 this is called an everlasting covenant. So here it helps to know that the Hebrew word translated everlasting is not equivalent to the word eternal, but it means long-lasting. And so the more specific time period of the covenant is while the earth remains. We get more clarity on this in the New Testament in 2 Peter chapter 3, where we learn that this present world is awaiting a judgment by fire when our Lord Jesus Christ returns and he ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. And so we should understand that this covenant is very long-lasting indeed. And yet in the end, it is only temporary. The order of nature will be preserved until this present world is ultimately destroyed by fire and remade into a new heavens and a new earth. And so when we consider this covenant as a whole, we see that it provides for the essentials to maintain human society and the broader natural order. For when you consider what is really needed for the survival of the human race, all the essentials are covered here. A stable environment, procreation, protection, food, and a restraint on the violence which flows out of the sinful human heart. God provides for all these things in the Noah Covenant. And it's within this framework, the framework of the Noahic Covenant, that the rest of history will now unfold, including the history of God's redeeming his people. Now, let's zoom in on verses 5 and 6, where we'll focus on God's establishment of his civil government. And we'll consider what we can learn about this topic from these verses. So verse 5. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Here God declares that he requires a reckoning, an accounting, a recompense for the shedding of the blood of man. This is required even in the count of an animal killing a man. The Hebrew word translated fellow man in the second sentence is literally brother. And I believe it's actually a reference back to Cain killing his brother Abel, the prototypical, the first murder. Verse 5 is then strengthened by verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Here we see what we call the lex talionis, the principle of retaliation, which says that crime should be punished in a proportional manner. Since after the initial sin against God in the garden, the taking of the fruit, murder is then the first great crime for sin after that first one. Murder is also chosen here to be the example. This example is meant to serve as a principle which is applied to other crimes as well. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, etc. This can also be applied to other crimes like theft and adultery where there is no actual bodily harm done. 
And the lex talionis is not always to be taken literally. The point is simply this, that the punishment should fit the crime. There should be proportionality. The final phrase in verse 6 can be interpreted in two different ways. The phrase, for God made man in his own image. The most common reading is that murder must be taken seriously because of the dignity of mankind having been made in the image of God. And so an attack on an image bearer is an attack on the image itself, an attack on God, the one who, and the one who takes such an action must answer for committing so serious a crime. I believe that that interpretation is in fact true based on simple reason and based on the teaching of James 3.9. However, I don't think that's what this particular verse is teaching. There is a second interpretation, which I believe is the correct interpretation. This preposition for is not specifying why a murder is a serious offense, but rather a reason why man is endowed to carry out the sentence. Why is a mere man, a finite creature, able to execute a condemned murderer? Because God has made man in his own image. While God himself handled the case of Cain, he now hands responsibility for executing justice on earth to man, because God made man in his own image. Here in this covenant, God is establishing the civil government, handing the sword of his vengeance to civil authorities and entrusting them with this duty to punish evildoers on his behalf. This is a great responsibility. Now, certainly there is a lot that is not said in these two short verses. A lot of the details about how governments will be ordered will be left to human wisdom. And next week we'll learn, we'll look at how God himself ordered the civil government of his people Israel. Certainly there will be a lot of heavenly wisdom to be gained there. And yet there are four characteristics of civil government that flow from these verses and from the Noahic covenant more generally. These are that civil government is legitimate but provisional, common yet accountable. Now these come from the Bible's teaching, but I'm drawing these titles directly from the work of David Van Drunen. As we consider these, I'll also be drawing in other supporting texts. So first and second, civil government is legitimate but provisional. It is legitimate because God has established it and it rests on his authority. As Paul writes in Romans 13:1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. As I said earlier, I believe Paul had the Noahic covenant in mind as he wrote this verse. Civil authorities serve an important purpose in restraining violence in order to maintain civil society. And since they derive their authority from God, we are commanded to honor and obey them, except, of course, when they require us to sin. But they are provisional in the sense that they will not last forever. Only the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ will last forever. This was depicted vividly in our recent sermon on Daniel chapter 2. 
The Lord revealed what was to come to to King Nebuchadnezzar in a dream, and Daniel interpreted it for him. A great metal statue symbolized the kingdoms of men. But then a stone cut by no human hand struck the statue, and all the kingdoms were broken to pieces and became like chaff which the wind blew away. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. That stone represents the kingdom of God, an everlasting kingdom which will not be destroyed. Even as this, king, is, as this dream contrasts the temporary kingdoms of men versus the eternal kingdom of God, it also recognizes the legitimacy of those kingdoms. In Daniel chapter 2, Daniel praises the Lord in him saying, He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. And as Isaiah writes, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as dust on the scales. He brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. Isaiah 40, 15, 23, and 24. In the history recorded by Daniel and the future history prophesied by him, we see kings cast down, other kings raised up. It is God who places those kings on their thrones. Long before Paul wrote the words in Romans 13, Daniel was already obeying these principles as he served the kings of Babylon and then the kings of Persia with distinction. Even though Daniel was in exile, he recognized that these kings were legitimate rulers set on their thrones by the one true God who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And yet even as he served faithfully in these earthly kingdoms, Daniel's heart was set on the coming kingdom of his Messiah. He was set on the eternal kingdom to come. These kingdoms were provisional. Christ's kingdom is eternal. A civil government is legitimate, it is provisional in that it is temporary, but it's also provisional in another sense, in that it is highly fallible. It is composed of sinful men. Though God instituted government to punish evildoers, governments are often the greatest perpetrators of evil. We see many examples of this in the Bible. We see Pharaoh enslaving Israel and seeking to wipe out the entire population by murdering their children in the book of Exodus. In Daniel, we see Nebuchadnezzar commanding the people to worship an idol that he set up, and later King Darius outlawing prayer to anyone but himself. In Esther, we see Haman, a government official, plotting the genocide of the entire Jewish people. And of course, our Lord himself is crucified through a plot that is the work of the Jewish high council in cooperation with the Roman governor, Pilate. The early church was often persecuted by Roman government officials. And as I said last week, Islamic governors, governments are the most common persecutors of Christians in the world today. Of course, you know other historic examples of government violence, the Nazi Holocaust, and the brutal political purges of Stalin and Mao, 
who killed many millions more than the Nazis. Our government is not innocent either. Apart from our nation's history of slavery, in more recent times, almost everyone now admits that the war in Iraq was started based on deception and lies. Approximately 200,000 Iraqi civilians have now been killed, and a simple internet search will yield a long list of the war crimes that were committed by American forces and our allies during the war. Those casualties pale in comparison to the more than 60 million unborn babies that have now been murdered in our country over the last 50 years, with our own government and our taxes funding Planned Parenthood to the tune of over 500 million annually in recent years. While Christians look to our ruling authorities to maintain and preserve justice as they were instituted by God to do, we should not be surprised when instead we receive persecution and injustice. This is depicted in the book of Revelation in the imagery of the beast in chapter 13. I hope to look at this in greater detail in a future sermon, but in brief, the beast symbolically depicts a demonic state using its power to persecute Christ's church. Christ ultimately overthrows Babylon, the beast, and the kings of earth that out allied themselves to the beast in Revelation chapters 18 and 19. In the end, Christ triumphs over all, for it is Christ and his kingdom alone which stand eternally. So civil government is legitimate, but provisional, both temporary and deeply sinful. Third and fourth, civil government is common, but accountable. The fact that government is common flows from the universal nature of the Noahic covenant. Civil government is not given just to God's chosen people, but to all the peoples of the earth, both the good and the evil, the just and the unjust. The first question we might ask here is, what is the standard of justice upon which the ruling authority is to judge and punish offenders? As the authority comes from God, the standard also must come from God. And yet God establishes civil government long before he gives the Ten Commandments to his people at Mount Sinai, and at that same time establishes them as their own particular nation, giving them their own civil law code. And so the law by which nations are ruled is what we call the natural law, the moral law which God has written on the heart of every human being, as Paul writes in Romans 2, 14 and 15. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. We have several examples of this in Scripture. For example, when Abraham sojourns in Gerar, and tells King Abimelech that his wife Sarah is his sister, Abimelech takes Sarah to be his wife. When Abimelech then discovers the truth, he is outraged at Abraham, saying, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom this great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. Genesis 29. Things that ought not to be done. 
Though Abimelech is a pagan and a Gentile king, he had a keen sense of the natural law, a keen sense of what is right and wrong. You also see this in the many prophetic pronunciations of judgment on the Gentile nations surrounding Israel. In all of these, they are not denounced for failing to keep the specifics of the Mosaic law, or even for failing to worship the one true God, but for their grievous breaches of the natural law. A good example of this is found in Amos chapters 1 and 2. Amos systematically pronounces coming judgment on all the nations surrounding Israel and Judah. They are not condemned for their idolatry, but for their war crimes, for their brutal and inhuman treatment of others, including ripping open pregnant women. Then when Amos comes to Israel and Judah, they are judged according to the higher standard of the Mosaic law. But the other nations are held only to the common standard of the natural law. Well, consider the special case of Old Testament Israel next time. But in all these cases, the prophets are declaring a coming judgment from God on these nations for their serious breaches of the natural law. In this, we see that the ruling authorities are servants of God. And since they have been entrusted with a duty to maintain justice by him, they are also accountable to him. And God reserves the right to bring judgment on civil rulers when they fail in their duty or when they misuse their power. While he has promised never again to do this through a worldwide flood, He has many other tools in his toolkit for the judgment of nations and their rulers. So, civil governments are to rule according to the natural law, and God holds them accountable when they fail to do so. We also know from Scripture that the human heart is desperately wicked, that through repeatedly sinning, the conscience can be seared, And that God hands sinners over to their sins so that they come to the point that they not only sin themselves, but they celebrate sin in others. The fact that we are in the midst of LGBTQ Pride Month is a vibrant testimony to this. The rainbow, the very symbol of God's patience with sinners, has come to celebrate man's rebellion against their creator. Our own government, which has been instituted by God to honor those who do good and punish those who do evil, has jumped on the bandwagon and now raises the rainbow flag at their embassies around the world. And yet Paul closes Romans chapter 1 by writing that even as sinners practice wickedness and give approval to others who do the same, they know in their hearts that these sins deserve death. Though the conscience is deeply seared, it cannot be completely obliterated. And all will stand before God's judgment seat on the last day. And in the end, they will bow down and recognize that God's judgment is perfectly just. So civil government is common. It is for all, but it is accountable. And civil rulers will be held responsible either in this world or on Judgment Day, for their failures to rule according to God's natural moral law written on the hearts of all. This morning we've looked at the way God established the framework to preserve humanity in the Noahic Covenant. 
He provided for mankind by promising to uphold the regular patterns of the natural order. And he provided for man's procreation, protection, and food. And as we focused on this morning, he established civil government. We saw that civil government is legitimate because it derives its authority from God, but it is provisional in two ways, both temporary and deeply sinful. We also saw that civil government is common. It's for all mankind, not just God's chosen people, but it is accountable to God. And he reserves the right to bring judgment on civil rulers who abuse their power and fail in their duty to uphold justice. This morning is just the first sermon in our mini-series on civil government. In the next two weeks, we'll look at civil government in the Old Testament, in Old Testament Israel. As we conclude this morning, let me give a brief application. Christians throughout history have sought to bring reform to the societies they've lived in, including the governments that God has set over them. Reform is certainly a good thing. But if it is not rooted in the nature of civil government as established by God, you could also see how reform efforts could go astray. For example, some Christians having rejected or neglected the notion of a common civil government, sought to establish an exclusively Christian state. Another common error is to forget that the state is provisional and so have overly high hopes of what it can competently accomplish. Scripture clearly teaches us, put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation, Psalm 146.3. Others reject the legitimacy of the state altogether and either seek to withdraw from common political life or to seek to abolish government entirely. Now, I don't know that, I don't know of anyone who has denied that civil rulers will be held accountable by God. You never know. It seems like every error that can be made, someone out there will make it. At the same time, there are many admirable examples of Christian reformers throughout history who have worked within the true nature of civil government for reform. One of the best examples of this is William Wilberforce and the Clapham sect, who worked tirelessly for nearly 40 years to outlaw the slave trade and then to abolish slavery, slavery altogether in the British Empire. This was accomplished one month after his death. Let us learn from such examples. And so let us pray for those in authority over us. Let us pray and let us work for biblical reform in our country and in our civil government. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, as we read this text and hear it proclaimed, we see how in your wisdom you set forth the framework in which to work out all of history, providing for us the perfect environment for our procreation, for our protection, for our food, and for our justice. All so that you might work for our redemption in our Lord Jesus Christ. We do pray, Father, for those in authority over us. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, work for wise 
rulers, that you would grant them wisdom to rule for justice. We do uh, thank you for the government that we have, deeply imperfect as it is, and we do pray for greater justice, for more just laws, for more just just judges, for more just uh, legislators. But most of all, we do pray for greater revival within our country, that more would know the Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation that is found within, with, found in him alone. Lord, work a deeper revival in our own hearts and lives, for we do long to know you more, to love you more. And we pray it in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.